last week we finished chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. And I said as we were clomping through the last paragraph, I'm going to have to probably double back a little, so let's do that. Chapter 3 says, therefore, holy brothers. Well, in order to understand therefore, you've got to understand why it's therefore. So we'll back up to 2.14 and get a run at chapter 3. So 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. So what has been established up until now? Chapter 1 established that Yeshua is the heir of God, and he inherits everything. Chapter 2 establishes that he is human and therefore a brother to us. And since he is human and a brother to us, what's going to happen here is by his death, he is going to back out the sin of Adam. When Adam ate the fruit that he was told not to eat of, everybody became mortal. He died and his children after him were all mortal. What Yeshua's death does is back that out. So that all of the children of Adam now have the ability to become immortal. Remember, that's what's going on in the gospel when people come up to Yeshua and say things like, Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we're talking about immortality, and so his death, being man and God both, suffices to back out our mortality, but not until the new heaven and the new earth. So what has been established then is Yeshua is the heir, Yeshua is human, like us, and that his death backs out the consequences of Adam's disobedience. Therefore, which is what I just read, we are then able to face physical death confidently. And we need no longer be held in slavery by fear of physical death. One of the things that has been the power of Satan is the fear of physical death. And remember, one of the things that I've talked about is God works on you from the inside out. God has given you a spirit that he is able to connect with. So he is able to connect from the inside. Satan doesn't have that ability. But Satan has access to your body. So Satan works from the outside, God works from the inside. And the power that Satan has, since he works from the outside, is the power to kill you. Hence, that power that he has, the ability to kill you, you know, through whatever means, makes you then a slave of his because of fear of death. The idea is, if you believe that this is all there is, then the threat of death becomes potentially terrifying. If, however, you believe this is not all there is, and that, in fact, you have assurance of resurrection and the world to come, then death here becomes much less terrifying. Look at the Egyptians. They had the Israelites there, and through fear of death, punishment, and so forth, they were able to keep them enslaved. Look at any slave society on earth. 
and the power of that slave society is the ability to kill you or make you things really painful for you. Satan, as prince of the earth, if you will, has the ability to coerce you to do things that he wants you to do. And his ability to coerce you is based on your fear of death, ultimately. And Yeshua's sacrifice, which allows us to become heirs in the world to come, removes that hold that Satan has over us. That's what's being asserted here. Years and years ago, we had a guy that drifted through the congregation that was very demon-ridden. And we got rid of a bunch of them. But one of them that he had was, I'm looking for an opportunity to die for God. And that attitude is not godly. That's a demonic attitude. Now, if you are in Yeshua's service, it may eventuate that that's going to happen. But that isn't your goal. It's sort of like Patton famously said, nobody ever won a war by dying for his country. You win wars by making the other guy die for his country. Back to what the writer of Hebrews says, which is what I'm trying to unpack, is he's saying the ultimate power of Satan is the fear of death. Parenthesis, not in scripture, but my interpretation is he has access to your body. And because of that access, he has the ability to cause you great pain or death. And the fear of that gives him power over you. And Yeshua, having backed out disobedience of Adam by his own obedience, takes the sting out of the fear of death. But demons only have influence over you that you give them. They come and whisper in your ear, and you say, wow, that sounds good and you start listening to them. And pretty soon they're perched on your shoulder and they're directing you. But it's something that you at some point, either wittingly or not, have chosen. So we're now all the way down to 2.16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like us, brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he was able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this is going to introduce the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, but we've got an intervening chapter 3. And chapter 3 is going to have a slightly different focus, and we're not really going to come back to the priesthood until chapter 4. One of the things that the rabbis say is that the reason Aaron was made high priest is because Aaron was a very empathetic character. He could understand people's emotions, pains, all that kind of stuff, and so in that way he was ideally suited to plead their case before God, because he was sympathetic and empathetic. That's what's being said here, is since he is our brother, he is one of us, he has been subject to the temptations that we are subject to, he is able to understand our frailties and so present our case before God in a very compelling way. So now, on to chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, 
You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So what he's now going to do is he's going to compare Yeshua to Moses. Verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So what he's saying is Moses is the house, Yeshua is the builder of the house. Hence the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. Verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Remember we talked about the thing that was testified to by angels? So Hebrews 2. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The angel there being spoken of is Moses. So Moses is the one who gave the Torah. I mean, God gave the Torah to Moses, but Moses is the one that gave the Torah to Israel. So Moses is the angel or the messenger here who was the agent by which Israel got the Torah. And the Torah itself was reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay, that's the whole point of the Torah and the Tanakh. So now down in chapter 3, we're back to Moses except Moses is being named here. Now pick it up in 3.3. For Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to things that were to be spoken later. But Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son. So the angel back up in 2.2 that's delivered the Torah to Moses. Now we're down here in Moses' name. And the idea here is Moses is a servant of God, and he is the angel that gave the Torah, and he was faithful in God's house as a servant. Yeshua, however, is the son and the heir. So he has more glory as the son and the heir and the builder of the house than does Moses, who was a servant and simply the angel who delivered the Torah. Later on, we will get to the idea of the covenants. The new covenant versus the old covenant. We'll be talking about the covenant as given by Moses versus the new covenant. We'll talk about that later. So you're going to have this interplay, if you will, between Moses and Yeshua as we go through here too. And that interplay started back up in chapter 2. Now, let's pick it up in verse 5 again now. Chapter 3, 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. In other words, the Torah has got prophecy in it. And there are passages in the Torah where it's obvious that it's talking about someone to come, a Messiah. So Moses was the servant of God who testified of the things that were to be spoken later. So you have Isaiah and you have Jeremiah and you have all the prophets 
who refer back to the Torah and give various prophecies of the Messiah. Those are the things that are to be spoken later. In other words, Isaiah depends on Moses. Jeremiah depends on Moses. Ezekiel depends on Moses. Yeshua himself depends on Moses. So everything goes back to Moses, and Moses then is the one who gave the original Torah, and he was also then a prophet, speaking of things that are yet to be spoken. And then verse 6, but Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So we are his house. I take that to be, you are this church. So you are of the house of Messiah. You are of the house of Windsor. You are of the house of whatever. You understand the phraseology there. It doesn't say we are the boards and walls of his house. We are members of his household. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. That's a quote from Psalm 95. It starts in 95, verse 7 and a half, if you will. Today, if you hear his voice, so forth. Do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as at the day at Massa in the wilderness. Meribah and Massa are testing and rebellion. So that's a direct quote from Psalm 95. Now, what he's going to do is go into a riff on today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So what it's saying is, in the day that you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So whenever today is, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because the generation in the wilderness did harden their hearts. And we're talking about when they were told to go up and take the land, and they sent the spies, and they decided, nope, we're not going up. Okay, That's what we're talking about here is the sin of the spies, where that generation refused to go up because they had been spooked by the spies. And so that was what caused them to spend the next 38 years in the wilderness. He gave them credit for time served. They'd already been in the wilderness two years at that point. And so we had credit for time served. Verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Messiah, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So he's repeated this, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Remember he started the quotation from Psalm 95 with that. We're working again. For we share in Messiah, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's emphasizing this business of today. And what he's going to demonstrate is today is whenever you hear the word of God. So verse 16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not all those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? 
And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. We're not going to finish chapter 4 tonight, I don't think. But I want to finish this thought, which continues into chapter 4, because you need some of chapter 4 to finish the thought. So chapter 4 now. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what he's asserting is, as long as today is called today, the promise of entering his rest is still on offer. Verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What is he saying there? They got the gospel. They have the same gospel we have. Let me read it again. Chapter 4, verse 2. For good news, the gospel, came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the idea is they had the gospel. We're talking about good news now in two different senses. I'm talking about good news as the message of God's love and grace and salvation. So what I'm saying to you is the Torah is the gospel. Everything you need for salvation is in the Torah. Now, what the New Testament does and by the way, and you've heard this before, but I will repeat it, because it's worth repeating. I do not agree with messianics who want to call the New Testament the Brit Hadashah. It is not the New Covenant, it is the New Testament. A testament is evidence. So what the New Testament is, is the evidence that the promises that God made to Israel and to humanity back in the Tanakh have been fulfilled in the person of Yeshua. It is evidence. There's nothing fundamentally new in the New Testament. The only thing new in the New Testament is, here's the evidence that God was faithful to his word, and the Messiah that he promised has finally come, and the Messiah has done everything that he was prophesied to do in the Tanakh. So what I'm saying is, the action, if you will, of the person of the Messiah, the things he did, simply filled out the plan that God made evident clear back in the Torah. So the Torah itself is the foundation of the good news. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, they had the same good news that we have. Well, what they had was Moses. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, Moses should have been enough. Everything you need for salvation is in the Torah. And what you have is the sacrifice of the Messiah and the shedding of the blood that was promised is what happens in the New Testament but it was promised and prophesied in the Old, and the people in the Old Testament, believing those promises and acting on them, would have been saved just as much as you were. And remember, this is a letter to Hebrews. And at the time of Moses, it was not realized that Gentiles were eventually going to come in. In fact, Peter, when he goes to Cornelius's house, and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, all the Jews just got smacked. They didn't expect anything like that. And that's a mystery that's hidden, and it's explained in Ephesians and Corinthians. But the basic plan, as far as the Hebrew understanding is concerned, goes clear back to Moses. And all the New Testament then is, is the outworking of what's prophesied in Moses and later prophets, and 
the event of the actual shedding of his blood. But the shedding of his blood, as we'll see later, actually happens up in heaven. He goes to heaven with the blood, and he sprinkles the blood before the mercy seat in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy. And I am going to assert that that copy in heaven is outside of the time stream. And so the sprinkling of his blood, which in our time stream looks like it happens 2,000 years ago, I'm asserting that in God's economy happens forever. Therefore, the blood that is shed 2,000 years ago for us was also effective for the Hebrews who came out of Egypt with Moses. So verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What he is saying there is David wrote Psalm 95. He's also said the Holy Spirit wrote Psalm 95. So David wrote Psalm 95, as did the Holy Spirit. David says, today, do not harden your hearts. But David is writing hundreds of years after the Exodus. So, David, writing hundreds of years after the Exodus, says, today, if you... Hear the word, do not harden your hearts. Therefore, today, from David's time, is hundreds of years after the hardening of the hearts in the wilderness, which means that today, for us, is still effective because the window is still open. And as long as today is called today, the window remains open. That's what he's saying there, one other thing. If you read Genesis 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, And on the seventh day, God finished his work. But wait a minute. The heavens and the earth were finished in six days. But God's work was finished during the seventh day. So what did God create? What work did God do on the seventh day? Because it says very clearly, the heavens and the earth were finished. That was at the end of six days. And all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. What did he do on the seventh day? He created rest. On the seventh day, God made rest. Now, we don't think of making rest. We think of rest as a cessation of activity. What this says is on the seventh day, God finishes work. So the work that he did on the seventh day was to invent, create, make, whatever you want to call it, rest. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, back in Hebrews 4.4, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage it said, they shall enter my rest. In other words, I am creating rest on the seventh day, and they will not come into it. Let's pick it up at verse 8 now, chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God because they did not enter into it. 
For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So how do you strive to enter rest? There's a difference between stopping work and entering into God's rest. And that's the point that's being made. We are so tied up with the idea of rest simply being the cessation of work. And that isn't what's happening biblically. Rest is something that he created. And there's an ability to enter into that rest. And what whoever wrote Hebrews says is, as long as we maintain our confidence in our, in our boasting in him. We pick it up in 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And he's led off with, back in verse 6, 3, 6, but if Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. So this idea of holding fast our confidence that we have a place in the world to come, that we are of Messiah, that we can trust him, etc., if we hold fast to that confidence, then we can enter into his rest. Let's go ahead and finish up this thought, and then uh, where we're going to pick it up next time is 4.14. Let's pick it up at 4.8 again. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Now, this resting from your works is not to say that you cease works. This is saying you enter into the rest, but like Shabbat, you work six days and on the seventh day you rest. It doesn't say you don't ever do any works again. So, verse 10, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The idea here is holding fast to the end. Remember, he said that now twice. And... The other thing he's saying here in a roundabout way is what I said is God works from the inside out. The word of God is a two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Soul is the part of you that your mind will and emotion. Spirit is the part of you that connects to God, if it does. There are some people with spirits who do not connect to God. And then joints and marrow. So what it's talking about here is body, soul, and spirit if you will. And the Word of God is able to separate those, body from soul from spirit. And if you are a believer in resurrection, and I am, what Paul says in another place is that the body that gets put into the grave is a seed. And that seed gets planted in the earth. You die, the seed, your body gets planted in the earth. You are being in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. The Word of God separates those three parts, and when you die, the body goes into the ground and decays. 
the spirit and the soul go back to God later on to be reunited with the body resurrected. What we're going to do next week is we'll pick it up in verse 14, and that then reflects back to the idea that Yeshua is our high priest. And we'll then go on to explain that concept.